Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. Thank you for joining us in this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I am a fourth year PhD student at Royal Holloway, currently investigating how love is valued and experienced in religious families of old dissenters in the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm very pleased to be joined today by John Lowe. John is a PhD candidate at VU Amsterdam, and he currently serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Louisville. He's also a contributor to the Princeton and Slavery Project. His dissertation focuses on Jonathan Edwards' Slavery and Race. Last year, he published an edited volume called Jonathan Edwards Within Enlightenment, Controversy, Experience, and Thought. And indeed, this edited volume and his contributing chapter will be the subject of our interview today. So I'm so delighted to be here today with John Lowe to be discussing his chapter, Destruction and Benevolence, The New Divinity and Origins of Abolition in Edwardsian Tradition. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, John. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course, the privilege is ours. So to start with, in this chapter, you discuss Edwards' position on slavery. So was he pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Well, uh, like anything with Jonathan Edwards, his mind was very complex. He had a position that uh, today we would see we would see as peculiar. Edwards was definitely pro-slavery. He owned a number of slaves for the majority of his life. Uh, he purchased his first slave at the at a slave port in Newport, Rhode Island, in 1731, and we know that he owned slaves throughout his his entire life through personal correspondence and uh, some uh, found slave receipts. And uh, when he died, he had left a slave in his will and inventory of his estate. So he was a proponent of slavery uh, to the end, but he was against the slave trade. He wrote in opposition to the immoral practice of uh, man-stealing, as it was commonly called. Um, That is forcibly removing people, or to use Edwards' term, to disfranchise people from their homeland into slavery. He was also against the the maltreatment that Africans were suffering under the bondage of white Europeans. So his position is a little peculiar in that uh, he was for the institution of slavery, but he was also against the slave trade. So how did Edwards' approach to slavery reflect wider Enlightenment sentiments? Uh, In some ways, Edwards resisted the the Enlightenment, but in other ways, um, uh, he embraced it. He approached slavery in terms of what uh, what I call a spirit-matter dualism or a spirit-temporal dualism. Uh, his Puritan forebears would have seen the world, uh, the world of like celestial and temporal coexisting, like almost inseparable. So figures like the Mathers uh, would see the world uh, of, of spirits and the physical realm all coexisting. But for Edwards, at least in regards to slavery, he saw a divide between a person's body and a person's spirit. 
And in many of his sermons, he readily called for people to end their slavery to sin by repenting and coming to Christ, but he did not call for an end to bodily slavery. So in some ways, he used the Enlightenment to keep in step with his, uh, his theological Puritan heritage and to defend slavery at the same time. Okay, so Jonathan Edwards was in favor of the institution of slavery, but against the slave trade. Could you say a little bit about how his perspective or interpretation of the Bible influenced these specific views? Uh, the only really known uh, work that's devoted to the subject is in a draft letter on slavery uh, that he wrote defending a fellow Armenian minister uh, in New England. And in this uh, slave letter, he uh, alluded to Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. And uh, in this passage, he described the Israelites' uh, right to purchase slaves from other nations, but not to steal them or their children away from their own lands. So for Edwards, this moral code kind of set parameters around the right way of purchasing and owning slaves. Those who could be slaves were limited to war captives, debtors, and the children of uh, people who were already enslaved. Uh, however, Edwards uh, denounced the slave trade by claiming it was based on false biblical precepts. So, um, often the proponents of the, uh, the slave trade drew a parallel between uh, the Israelites in Exodus and the Hebrews leaving, leaving Egypt, in which God gave them uh, the Israelites permission of the former slaves to plunder the wealth of the Egyptians before they left in Deuteronomy 15.6. But he contended that God allowing something in Scripture didn't necessarily make it okay in all circumstances. So if God allowed something to happen in the Bible, he didn't give people the right in the 17th and 18th centuries to uh, make it permissible for them. So in your chapter, you go on to talk about how Edwards' views influenced the New Divinity Movement. So can you talk mm-hmm. to us a bit about the New Divinity Movement? How did it both continue and divert away from Edwards' views? Sure. Uh, in short, the New Divinity uh, usually refers to his immediate follows and uh, Edwards' theological heirs. So many of his students, like Joseph Bellamy, his son Jonathan Edwards Jr., and his other well-known Uh, student Samuel Hopkins, all continued with uh, Edwardsian theology, or what's also commonly called the New England theological tradition. That is, they held on to his, I guess what you would say, flavor of Calvinism um, and the oncoming evangelicalism with the emphasis on the new birth. But one of the ways they departed from Edwards was in their abolitionism. At the end of the 18th century, they looked very different than, uh, than, very different than Edwards. They were Patriots in favor of the American Revolution. Uh, they were they denounced uh, the king. They were and they denounced um, uh, slavery. And they were full blown abolitionists. They even freed some of their uh, some of their own slaves. So in that regard, they diverted greatly from Jonathan Edwards. Can you speak a little bit about what did people in the New Divinity Movement think of Edwards' views? Then have you gone into that research at all? What did they think about Edwards? pro-slavery, anti-slave trade views. Sure, sure. yeah. Um, the New Divinity thought they were simply expanding on Edwards's views, on, on his theology. They, they thought that Edwards was, uh, was right in nearly every aspect. They, they saw themselves uh, keeping uh, a consistent Calvinism, and to, use, to use their term, of Edwards, Edwards's theology. So um, and we can dive in, into this a little a little later, but Samuel Hopkins, especially, 
thought that he was simply explaining Edwards more fully by talking uh, about dis- disinterested benevolence and how uh, he was simply applying Edwards's ethic. So going back to the new divinity movement, how did they convey their opposition to slavery? Uh, the new divinity conveyed their opposition to slavery in several uh, in several different aspects. First, uh, they used basic arguments of reason and common morality to condemn slavery. Observing the inhumane treatment of Africans and exposing the fallacies within the arguments of justifying man-stealing led to the moral conversion, I guess you could say, of the new divinity. Uh, they saw uh, the inhumane practices um, uh, of how Africans were being taken off the boats, being having their ears cropped off, the beatings and uh, that type of thing. Secondly, the new divinity, new divinity unashamedly exploited revolutionary philosophy in their cause for human equality. Uh, the political notions of freedom, equality, and the like were concepts they easily used, uh, easily used for, to further their, their ideas of emancipation uh, for slaves and equality among all races, including Native Americans. And thirdly, uh, the new divinity saw slavery in addition to the slave trade as contrary to the Christian message. So as far as the new divinity was concerned, the maltreatment of African that Africans were receiving was the only impression that they had of Christianity. And so if that was the only impression they had, they would be and so they would, so to speak, be turned off by the religion. And so in many ways, slavery was counterproductive to evangelism, which was at the very heart um, of the new divinity's uh, mission. And did humanitarianism come into play with the new divinity opposition to slavery? Or was it mainly, as you say, this evangelical uh, gospel focus? Yeah, I would say it's, it was very uh, it was very humanitarian. Um, for the new divinity, especially Samuel Hopkins, uh, he was uh, he was able to be a humanitarian and keep in step with Edwardsian Calvinism uh, in his approach to slavery. So. In his doctrine of disinterested benevolence, uh, he contends that all true holiness and that all, uh, I guess you would say, all true, all true love and all true virtue begin begin with God. And so, in order to display true virtue, in order to display true benevolence, that is, daily living the daily life of a Christian, one would have to seek the interest of all others except for the self. And so in that regard, Hopkins was able to crusade for abolitionism and emancipation um, in the name of Christianity. So in that way, he was being a humanist and he was also uh, keeping his Calvinism, so to speak. So speaking of Samuel Hopkins, then actually, can you talk a bit more about how he expanded Edward's views? Sure. Um, in in a way, Hopkins redirected Edwards's ethics. Uh, Jonathan Edwards's doctrines uh, aimed benevolence and the selflessness toward God, while in agreement with Edwards, the New Divinity, and specifically Samuel Hopkins, particularly uh, under the immediate influence of Edwards, emphasized that showing benevolence and selflessness toward God meant that one would in turn show the same toward others, and in this case, African slaves. For the new divinity to fully practice Christian virtue, and even more so to, to be, quote unquote, to be a Christian, meant to operate with disinterested benevolence and the selfless good, not only to God, as Edward suggested, but toward all people, all beings, included those who needed it most. And for Sammy Hopkins, that was for those who were oppressed in slavery. 
I wonder if you can comment at all uh, about sort of the distinction between those like Samuel Hopkins and Jonathan Edwards, sort of what was the impetus behind why Samuel Hopkins was able to expand these views so that he not didn't only oppose the slave trade, but also the institution of slavery? Why do you think Edwards didn't quite get there? Well, for Edwards, he was definitely trained in a medieval tradition. He was schooled in the Protestant scholastics. He was he had this strong Puritan heritage that revered things like hierarchy. And so he believed that one station in life was divinely appointed. So if someone was born a king, if someone was born a prince, someone who was born in the middle class, someone who was born in a lowly state, someone who was born as a slave, that was all divinely appointed by God. And so uh, it would be wrong, you know, for you to go against your station in life that has that God has given you. And so, for him to, uh, for Edwards to, to go against the grind to say, you know, it's okay to overturn the hierarchy, would be to go against God. So that that's one aspect of how Edwards held on to, I guess, a puritanical view of the Enlightenment. Um, or lack thereof, really. And for Edwards, you know, he really wants, he, he thinks, you know, in many ways of a very, I guess, in, in its infancy, an American dream. You can change, you know, who you are, and it is, it is okay. It is, you can be an obedient Christian. You can obey the scriptures and still um, release yourself from your physical bondage in life or, you know, seek a higher a station in life and still be a Christian. And so in that regard, Hopkins differs greatly from Edwards. And that leads to my next question. I wonder, how do you approach historical actors like Edwards, who, although he condemned the slave trade, was not against slavery itself? How do you process that? How do you approach that sort of thing? For Edwards, he was grappling with Enlightenment ideas, and at the same time, same time, trying to hold fast to his Puritan way of thinking, such as hierarchy. And so, some of our our historical figures are people of their time. And now, that's not to say that's not to give him him an excuse or anyone an excuse that uh, that lived during the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that were proponents of slavery. But it does give us a sense that. They have blind spots where, you know, we have the advantage of being in the future. You know, we can look back and say, well, he was definitely wrong about this, that, and the other. And surely people uh, well beyond our time will, can look back at the historical figures and the uh, the theologians of today and be like, well, they were wrong in this, in this way. So I think approaching Edwards with the realization that he did some good and, and some bad and realizing he wasn't perfect gives that balance to realize, okay, he can offer us something today. He can, he can offer something good, but at the same time, keeping in mind, you know, he wasn't perfect and he did, he did do some bad things. Some, you know, some, what we would call, you know, wicked things such as owning slaves and, and buying young, young slaves. I mean, um, at least two of his slaves that he purchased were, were minors. One was a, a, a three-year-old boy. So I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, you could, you could say that Jonathan Edwards participated in child trafficking. I mean, I know that's like, that's kind of like in, when you say participating in slavery, that's kind of like assumed. But when you say it in those terms that are still true, 
you know, it, it sheds a different light, you know. So when, whenever you think of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote The Freedom of the Will, Religious Affections, you know, you can also say, well, he was also, he also participated in child trafficking as a part of slavery. Really, uh, it really um, can be a shocker, but I believe that there is still, uh, Edwards still offers, can offer us something. Um, you're you're looking at how Edwards made some significant contributions to theology, and indeed, some have suggested that that Edwards was the greatest theologian that America ever produced, uh, so to speak. But then, at the same mm -hmm. time, he was an advocate and indeed a participant in slavery. And and I'm wondering, um, while both of those things perhaps can be true, is there a sense or even an extent to which you should look at uh, Edwards' theology through the lens of understanding? that he was uh, embroiled in slavery? Like, are they completely separate in your mind? Or do you see that his theology could be in some way interpreted through or understood through his slavery? Ooh, that is a good, that is a good question. Yeah, I, I think you definitely can read uh, some of other Edwards's uh, theology through the, through the lens of, of slavery. You can, uh, you definitely can see how race, uh, how how the I guess the issue of race plays into his uh, millennial millennialism, um, but I'm not really for me. I'm still I'm I'm still <laughs> I've wrote the dissertation, but I'm I'm still conflicted with myself. Um, I think I arrived at the at the conclusion that Edwards was very contradictory, which I think most people would see. Um, I guess if you proofread his uh, his theology and his writings, you'd see that he would definitely would have said, you know, love your neighbor, you know, obey the golden rule, you know, that type of uh, that type of thing in, in its most basic form. But at the same time, he didn't apply that to you know the maltreatment of Africans, and so I think he was consistent. He was consistent in his theology, but he was conflicted in his praxis, meaning that. His theology in nearly in nearly everything was pretty consistent. However, when it become when it be, when it came to uh, applying that to the real world, I think that's where Edwards failed. And I think he was he, his his life wasn't a, I wouldn't sum it up as a walking contradiction, but in this regard, I think he was. So, what specifically interested you in the research on this chapter that you've written? Uh, the origins of this topic date back to uh, 2015, I think it was. I was taking a course on Jonathan Edwards and the Bible at Yale Divinity, and it was the first time I heard about Jonathan Edwards and slavery, and I was somewhat shocked. I know, you know, how could someone who had, you know, been a cavalier of the Great Awakening, been a huge proponent of evangelicalism, you know, also own slaves? Uh, in in that class uh, that. Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Minkema was teaching. I met Daniel Galata, who would eventually become my co-editor for the volume that this chapter is in. And we realized that there were uh, many different avenues, if you will, of Edwards's interaction or lack thereof with the Enlightenment that hadn't been explored yet. And so we both melded some of our interests and decided to forge them into a book. Uh, but specifically for this chapter and the research that would eventually become my dissertation topic, I was, interest, I was interested to see how the historical and theological context that shaped Edward's position led him to thinking that slavery as an institution was okay and divinely appointed and at the same time denounce the slave trade. 
So all of you, all of my uh, research has been geared to really to answer that question. So you you know you noted that this is part of your dissertation research. Can you tell us sure. a little bit more about that? How does this particular chapter fit in the wider context of your research? Uh, my dissertation uh, deals with Jonathan Edwards' uh, slavery and race, and so uh, this obviously has a big has a big part uh, in in my writing. So it deals a lot with uh, how e Af John well excuse me it deals a lot with how Edward saw uh, how how Edward saw Africans specifically and the role that they played in the oncoming millennium. So Edwards he looked forward to a millennium that encompassed all races uh, becoming becoming Christian and writing great divine books and um, that would reflect you know heaven in a sense all races under the under the Christian banner and so. How did he think about that in terms of the realization of a fallen world? Um, in short, if I could put it in just a few sentences, Edwards said that this is the practice that prevails, the practice of slavery. In a fallen world, there's nothing perfect, but this is the best we got. And this is, this is a hierarchy that's been given to us, and the station in life for some people are different. So... Uh, as far as as far as my dissertation goes, uh, the aspect of race also plays uh, greatly into Edwards's uh, mind of slavery. And why do you think this particular avenue of research is valuable or important? Well, I think for a few reasons, um, it's important. First, I, I think it's important to reveal the imperfections or the sins, really, of our of our heroes in church history. Uh, many times it's tempting to think the historical figures that we like to read, you know, were perfect, but, you know, and we probably do it sometimes unconsciously. Um, but in doing so, it reminds us that as smart as they were, you know, they weren't perfect. They're the same as us, human. Uh, but dovetailing with that, secondly, uh, this research is important because it explains uh, the past um, kind of as a caveat, as a warning. Uh, knowing where great, uh, great minds have lapsed in judgment can help. Historians, ministers, and lay people avoid, you know, the same mistakes. But it also gives a balance to people who want extremes. And in, in my experience, when you deal with uh, fi historical figures that are well known, like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, who were uh, who were slavers, many people just want the extremes. They they want to either shy away from the fact that Edwards was a was a slave owner, and they just want to focus on all the all the great theology he produced. Or they want the other extreme, and they they say, "Well, since he was a he was a slaver, uh, he really doesn't have anything to offer us." You know, what could what could a slave owner really offer? You know, uh, historical theology. If we can't if we can't trust his views on slavery, you know, how can we trust his theology? And so, uh, I think this type of work really gives balance uh, to those uh, to those two different extremes. That was very interesting to talk about that chapter. Thank you so much. Um, and of course, it's part of that book that you co-edited, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Within the Enlightenment, Controversy, Experience, and Thought. And I was wondering if we could spend a little bit of time actually talking about the overall project. Can you tell us a bit about this overall project? Uh, what other themes can be found in this edited volume? Sure. Um, 
because the Enlightenment is such a broad subject and because of the depth of Edwards' thought, there's a, a wide range of topics uh, in this volume. Uh, slavery, abolitionism, even witchcraft, uh, pain, violence, race. Uh, all these topics are in hopes, actually, for others to take up in order to explore farther into, into Edwards' mind. But some of these uh, subjects have never uh, been touched before. Uh, the co-editor, Daniel, uh, and I were just, um, uh, we weren't uh, really taken back, but we were really surprised about, uh, about some of the chapters and how, how great um, and how specific they were. He had a chapter on witchcraft. One of the things that you know, has never has never been really explored uh, in Edwards' studies, and um, how Edwards deals with you know the witch of Endor in the Old Testament. You know, what what are his thoughts on that? Um, and one of the things that Edwards is you know is well known for is you know his hellfire and brimstone preaching, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, but one of the things that isn't really thought of very often is. Uh, is happiness, and it turns out to be one of the most, you know, used words in his writings. And so, there's in a chapter uh, by Dr. Amelia Marini uh, in that about Edwards and happiness. So, it's a, there's a lot of different avenues, um, if you will, of Edwards's thought with the Enlightenment in this volume. So, my final question for you, John, before I let you go, uh, what's next for you? Are there any other projects that you're embarking upon? You, in the midst of finishing up your PhD and such. Oh yes, first and foremost, uh, besides defending my uh, dissertation in the next few months, that is uh, that's going that's the next biggest thing for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm working on another edited volume uh, this time with Abby Tyler Todd, uh, entitled "The Influence of Jonathan Edwards in the Early American Republic: Patriotism, Exceptionalism, and the Pursuit of Happiness." Uh, this work focuses on the the group of theologians we previously discussed the new divinity and how they used edwards's ideas in a new nation um with the idea uh they had ideas of edwards and some of the most capable thinkers of their age the new divinity became the first indigenous school of calvinism in american history shaping the american theological tradition and helping forge uh, a national identity so uh that's what i'll be working on in, in the coming months Brilliant. Well, we look forward to seeing the fruits of that. Maybe we can have you come back again in future and do another podcast interview after you've defended your your dissertation Mm -hmm. and done some further research. Uh, Before I let you go, I wonder if you would like to remind our listeners of the title of your co-edited book and where they might procure a copy for themselves. Sure. It is Jonathan Edwards Within the Enlightenment, Controversy, Experience, and Thought. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any popular bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.